This is a Piccolo podcast production. In this episode, we have two stories about roller coasters. For them, we will take you to Battersea Park in London, England, and Alberta, Canada. I'm your narrator, Alex Malone. Welcome to Fairground Fuckups. Nineteen seventy two wasn't a great year for Great Britain. Strikes were crippling the country. The infamous Bloody Sunday incident, which would be eulogized in a U two song, went down in Northern Ireland. And it was becoming increasingly obvious to everyone that the Beatles weren't getting back together. Small wonder then that people sought escapism. Glam rock was in full swing with David Bowie, T Rex, Slade, the Suite, <laughs> dominating the music charts with big hooks and shiny clothes. When you think of fun parks and roller coasters, you likely think of Florida or California. Yet Great Britain is home to many of the world's wildest and largest roller coasters. Boasting names such as Vampire, Oblivion, and The Wicker Man, these modern rides offer the same thrills as their counterparts across the pond. The legacy of a different era, however, is the Battersea Fun Fair, opened in May 1951. It outlasted most of the prestigious exhibits on London's South Bank. The fair could well be seen as Britain's first theme park, predating Disneyland by four years. Battersea Park was chosen as the venue for the lighter, more frivolous side of the Festival of Britain. It was the brainchild of festival mastermind Gerald Barry and was developed along the dual themes of an imaginary old England and a futuristic wonderland. It was designed for just one year's operation but survived for more than two decades. According to Becky Conkin's Architects Journal article, Fun and Fantasy, Escape and Edification, these pleasure gardens offered visitors an amusement park, a children's zoo, a pet corner, two theatres, one dedicated to music performances, the other to ballet reviews and marionettes, a fanciful treetop walk, a Mississippi showboat and a huge tented performance pavilion. The John Collins Big Dipper, The Ride, which dated back to 1951 when the park was established during the Festival of Britain, was akin to the London Eye of today, which sits by the Thames. The Big Dipper attracted long, snaking queues of people paying 15 pence each to ride a thrill-a-minute joy ride where you pay to be scared. Ominously, the coaster experienced problems from the beginning. In May 1951... An empty car derailed and knocked over a protective railing, stranding passengers in the other cars, leaving them marooned for 20 minutes. Disaster struck the Big Dipper again in 1968 when another crash gave a woman a broken arm. In May 1970, £400,000 worth of damage was inflicted on the ride following a suspected arson attack. It was closed for two months. Then on May the 30th, 1972, Late in the afternoon, tragedy struck. 31 people had boarded a three-car wooden train. As it reached the top of the first incline, some 15 metres above the park, it was prematurely detached from the drive chain. Despite the best efforts of the brakeman, the train slipped backwards under its own momentum on a one-in-three gradient. At the bottom, it hit a tight turn and derailed. 
the lower carriage was crumpled by those behind. As soon as we started shooting backwards, everything went into slow motion, recalls Carolyn Adamchik. I turned around and saw the brake man desperately trying to put the brake on, but it wasn't working. Most of the carriages didn't go around the bend. One detached and went off the side through a wooden hoarding. People were groaning and hanging over the edge. It was awful. This girl screamed that she wanted to get off, but she leant on a wooden barrier and it collapsed. I tried to grab for her, but I saw her fall to the ground in front of me. I told everyone to stay where they were as I tried to find a way down, but I realised as I was walking down that I was walking on blood. I looked up, and next to the carriage, people were hanging out over the tracks. There was blood everywhere. Carolyn's friend, Sheila Brennan, who was with her on the ride that day, says the experience was incredibly traumatic for all the girls, especially because, in many ways, the disaster was left unresolved. She said... I don't recall being interviewed and I certainly don't remember the manslaughter trial that followed. We were just 14-year-old girls. I know the police weighed Carolyn's clothes to see if the roller coaster was overweight, but nobody spoke to me. They didn't even know I was there. We just gave an interview to the Daily Mail, then went home. That was it. Two teenage boys and an eight-year-old girl died at the scene. and Two other children died later. Scroll through any list of all-time worst fun park accidents and the Battersea disaster will make an appearance on most of them. Five children dead and 13 injured. A post-crash investigation revealed 51 faults on the ride. Not one person or any party was held responsible nor found guilty of causing the accident. A shocking verdict after the loss of five young lives. The disaster led to a review of fairground safety and several charges of manslaughter. Prosecutors described the ride as a death trap, citing dozens of flaws and safety concerns. Despite the accusations, the park's general manager and the ride's engineer were both cleared of the charges in November 1973. In 1972, none of the girls were offered counselling. Carolyn admits that she was hit hard and eventually had a nervous breakdown in 2005 when she was diagnosed with PTSD. She said there was no counselling and no offer of help other than being told to have a cup of tea and get on with it. Try telling that to the families left behind after losing a loved one. This episode of Fairground Fuck-Ups will continue in a moment. Welcome back to Fairground Fuck-Ups. In the late 20th century in Germany, an engineer by the name of Anton Schwarzkopf, not the one you're thinking of, was developing transportable roller coasters that could be enjoyed by patrons of parks across the globe. These were not small-scale, collapsible carnival rides either. Schwarzkopf's design set world records in height, length, speed, even in the number of loops on the track. Disneyland and any six flags in the United States had demonstrated the potential success of a dedicated park for family fun. Attractions such as the huge Dreyer looping roller coaster allowed for smaller enterprises to test the waters at any given location without having to commit to an expensive and irreversible construction schedule. 
After a successful 12-year engagement with the European circuit, Drea Looping Roller Coaster found backers who wanted to take the roller coaster on a world tour. Across the pond, the thrilling roller coaster was known by a few names. In Malaysia, it was the Triple Loop Coaster. In England, she was Magnum Force. While in Mexico, she has ultimately become known by the name Quimera. The epic coaster can still be found at La Feria de Chapultepec, if the gates of the park are ever to be open again. But this story is not about Quimera. This is about her twin, Mindbender. Edmonton in Alberta, Canada, is one of the northernmost cities in the world and among the coldest cities on average in the nation. With only five months of the year averaging temperatures above zero degrees Celsius, one can imagine that building an adventure park would be a risky financial prospect, with even those fewer warmer months capable of only reaching 10 degrees. Well, put those jackets away and enter Galaxyland through the doors of West Edmonton Mall. Offering the perfect solution for adventure lovers in the Great White North, who are not quite ready for the frozen wastelands, Galaxyland is an indoor theme park. Perhaps it's more accurate to say that Galaxyland is THE indoor park. Opening in 1983, it was originally known as Fantasyland. After 12 years, however, the park came to the attention of the famously litigious Walt Disney Corporation, who claimed copyright infringement over the use of the name employed at most of their own theme parks around the world. But that's getting a little ahead of the story. In 1985, two years after the grand opening, Fantasyland, as it was, debuted their latest and greatest attraction, Mindbender. Based on the same design as her twin in Mexico, Mindbender offered a legitimacy and thrill that would be hard to come by for an adventure park built within the confines of a mall. Here was a roller coaster that boasted a faster and more exciting experience than many long-established outdoor theme parks. Filled with countless twisting drops, a triple loop, a double upwards helix finale, Mindbender is the kind of roller coaster that makes other roller coasters insecure. Unsurprisingly, it very quickly became the single most popular ride at Fantasyland and propelled the establishment to greater heights. Speaking of heights, if Mindbender and Quimera were side by side, one would notice two differences in their construction. The final stretch of Mindbender has added more helices than its southern twin, and at 44.2 metres, it stands taller than Quimera, or any other indoor roller coaster in the world for that matter. It is a truly singular experience. It was that experience that Tony Mandrujic, Cindy Sims, Rod Chaco were lining up for the evening of on June 14, 1986, when they got together to spend a fun night out as friends. Mindbender was actually closed at the time the four arrived that day. During the operation of the ride earlier that afternoon, some of the patrons had voiced concerns about the way the ride had been vibrating towards the end of the track. Fantasyland staff had noted the noise coming from the train as it passed was louder than usual. A sound like some great roaring beast. Giving consideration to the concerns, Fantasyland management ordered the ride to be shut down and inspected. This disappointed many of those who had been waiting impatiently for their turn. One young man recalled waiting around to see how long it might take for them to make sure the ride was safe. He watched as their maintenance person arrived and began his inspection. At least, he was reasonably certain that he was a maintenance person. 
He was the only one who came to look at anything. The young man noticed that he seemed reluctant to actually get down on the floor or actually touch the rails or the cars. He likely didn't want to ruin the three-piece suit he was wearing. After the inspection yielded no definitive answers, the management ordered that the ride be run without passengers to see if there was any visible sign of danger. They began sending the trains around. It was during this time that Tony Mandrujic and his fiancée Cindy Sims arrived at Fantasyland to spend the evening together. At the same time, lifelong friends David Sager and Rod Chaco stepped into line behind the young couple. Having arrived earlier, they had killed some time at the arcade until an announcement was made that Mayan Bender was back in action for the night. They rushed straight over. In the investigation to come, it would be determined that a combination of low manufacturing standards on the rail cars used for the ride, in conjunction with a lack of proper maintenance procedures, had led to the condition of the cars deteriorating in ways that were not obvious to the naked eye. Specifically, the bearings that held the wheels in place on the tracks, thus securing the train to the ride, had shaken loose and the wheels no longer fit tightly. Mandrujic, Sims, Sega and Chaco took seats in the rearmost car. The ride set off, seemingly operating as normal. Had the additional test runs exacerbated the problem? Or was it the additional weight of four adults that led to the resulting disaster? On the approach to the ride's famous triple loop, the wheels of the rear car shook free their bearings and fell from the ride. The car began to fishtail wildly, still linked to the cars ahead, and was pulled along at a frightening speed. The car, no longer elevated by its wheel brig, was grinding against the steel of the track, and soon it stripped open the floor. Staff attempted to engage the emergency brake, but it is unclear if it had any effect. All forward cars were now violently shaking as the train continued towards the first loop, but they were noticeably losing speed. As the cars rose, momentum dropped quickly and the train couldn't reach the apex. It paused, momentarily suspending the terrified passengers. The rear car hung over one side of the tracks. Then the train fell backwards. This new terror was short-lived, however, as the reverse motion was suddenly halted when the rear car impacted one of the support columns for the roof of the building. The jarring halt rattled everyone in their seats. Then there was only the sound of weeping. It took emergency crews three hours to rescue the stranded passengers. 16 people were admitted to hospital for treatment. The violent shaking of the cars had left bruises, fractures and concussions to everyone, except for the four passengers in the rearmost car. They had been flung from the ride before it even reached the top, 15 metres to the concrete below. Tony Madrujic, Cindy Sims and David Sager died at the scene due to their injuries. Rod Chaco suffered two broken legs, a broken pelvis, a broken shoulder and a punctured lung, but he survived. His life, of course, has never been the same. The mental scars of that day have never faded. Not a day goes by that he doesn't think about his best friend and tears still come to his eyes at the memory. But when asked how he felt about the continued interest in the tragic story after so many years, he says, I do appreciate that people still think about it. Rod Chico would like the management of Galaxy Land to honour the memory of his friend 
and the young couple that lost their lives beside him. He has petitioned them over the years for a memorial tree, a bench, a plaque, something. They have declined. I'm Alex Malone, and that was Fairground Fuckups. Season one of Fairground Fuckups will continue with new episodes released every Monday. This podcast was produced by Piccolo Podcasts. We make branded podcasts for local businesses or companies and produce our own original shows. If you want to know more about Piccolo Podcasts or are thinking of starting your own show, head to our website, piccolopodcast.com.au or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Piccolo Podcasts. The link to our website is in the episode notes.